you might ban them, but if you ban these groups, they go into further isolation mm -hmm. and they keep reappearing. So the problem might be out of our sight, but it's not eliminating the problems. Hi, my name is Lucy and welcome to the Kennedy School Review Podcast. In today's episode, we will be discussing the harmful side of the internet. This episode touches on sensitive topics such as eating disorders, but has important public health and public policy consequences and is an issue that we think should be taken up by policymakers. And by way of introduction, I am a first year master's in public policy student here at the Kennedy School. I am joined by... Hi, my name is Nigella. I'm also a first year master's in public policy student here at the Kennedy School. Um, and I'm also joined by our very special guest, Andrea. Hi, I'm Andrea. I'm also a first-year student, and I'm a Master of Public Administration um, candidate at the Kennedy School. Yeah, so Andrea, I know that you have done significant research in this area. I just wanted to, maybe could you tell us a bit more about what these websites are, how pervasive they are, um, and who we suspect is typically behind the content that's viewed on these sites. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having this topic as part of a podcast series, because I think we don't talk enough about potential harmful effects of the internet. Um, and thank you for saying that I have significant research. I, I don't think I, I have enough research, but I did my thesis on these websites, which is what I will be talking about today. My thesis in public health. I was initially uh, interested in pro-ANA websites back in 2005. I was 18 then, and it was the first time that I read that in the internet there was these websites that were called pro-anorexia or pro-bulimia and had this um, emphasis on eating disorders being a lifestyle choice rather than a disease. And this got me really worried because we don't know who like who searches the internet and like who is going to these websites and what potential harm could these websites be doing. And I think that people that are suffering from eating disorders should be seeking help rather than finding spaces in which their behaviors are being normalized or even glamorized sure. as these websites. Um, but as I started reading more about them, the research shows that they're really diverse. So not all of them explicitly say that eating disorders are a lifestyle choice. Some of these websites actually admit that eating disorders are diseases. So it's hard to categorize them as being one way or the other. And um, some of the difficult things when addressing these websites is that there could be some helpful aspects of these sites in the sense of creating a sense of belonging for people that might not have belonging uh, offline. But they have also, the research has also shown that they could also be harmful in terms of like making it harder for individuals that are already suffering to recover and also providing information as how to keep the eating disorder secret. Um, so it's the evidence is mixed. Uh, my personal view is that even though there might they, they might have this social belonging components, mm -hmm. the harmful effects outweigh any potential benefits. And just to get a sense of the scope of these websites and who they're targeting and who is um, putting out content, pro-ANA content, um, could you describe a little bit about like statistics, how many websites exist, 
Yeah, as far as quantifying the websites, it is it is hard because some platforms have actually banned the sites and then they ban one site and then they sort of like reappear with a different name. So it's hard to quantify. Some research has shown that at a given point, there can be as much as 500 websites wow. um, of these type of, of this type of sites. And as far as the scope, one research article from 2012 showed that every year there are at least like 13 million searches for either pro-Anna or Thinspiration. So it was one way to sort of gosh um, as far as the scope of the site. And so this isn't something that I knew very much about or, or was even aware that existed. Can you talk about how targeted the sites are to specific individuals or are folks just searching on it and they run across these websites? And how targeted do you think that content is? Yeah, that's a very good question. Initially, I thought that they would mostly be targeted and visited by young, younger people. Mm-hmm. And some research does show that people even as young as nine are coming to these sites. Mm-hmm. In the case of my research, um, the mean age of people that had visited the sites was actually 27 years old, which is something that I didn't um, expect. In my thesis, it was a community sample. It wasn't a sample of people already suffering from disorders, so that is a little bit different. But just the fact that the mean age was 27, it was something that I didn't expect. So even um, the, not only the websites are diverse, but the people that are visiting these sites apparently are diverse also. Another interesting aspect is, well, not interesting, but something that worried me is that, at least in my sample, Many people that were visiting these sites were overweight as they um, a self-reported weight mm. um, in the survey that we did. And this concerns me because in some of these sites, probably the most um, extreme of these sites, they have these kind of language of telling some people that they're anorexics or wannabes rather than real anorexics. And what this worried me was that people that are visiting these sites, I'm assuming that they might already be vulnerable to eating disorders in some regard. Sure. And they're also visiting a site in which they're also being targeted for not being like real anorexics. So it's something that concerns me. And it's not it's not easy to sort of say like, oh, these websites only appeal to people that are already suffering or people that are already at low weights. And what do you see in terms of just thinking about like the um, social media and how these websites or the content of these websites might be disseminated initially on on social media platforms? Um, as far as social media, one of the, well, there, there are several things. Um, what I'm most scared of are sites like Instagram or like Flickr, where there are many pictures, because a big component of this site, it's something called Thinspiration, in which people are uploading pictures of very emaciated bodies and sort of portraying it not as an illness, but as something that people should aspire to. So I think that can be very harmful versus websites in which there are also information or words. I think the pictures themselves can be really harmful. One thing that I consider or initially considered really positive was that Tumblr decided to ban these websites and bring them down in 2012. Um, But yeah, like I said, they keep like reappearing with different names. 
So on that topic of, of deplatforming this content, um, are there is this some, is this an issue that um, regulators are looking at? Um, are, is this something that social media companies are looking at in terms of restricting or flagging content? Um, and what, do you have any sort of takeaways based on your research into this area? Yeah. So um, my research was. Um, on a survey of visitors to operating disorder websites, so it didn't include policy implication, and, and it's one of the topics that I hope to learn more as I'm here. But from what I read, there are like different types of proposals that could be done from the most extreme um, to like less extreme versions. So, for example, um, when we were talking about this with Nigella before uh, recording, was that Australia not only banned the the websites but also criminalized. Uh -huh. people that are behind these websites. And um, initially, I was completely in favor of this because it seems like, yeah, just like get rid of them mm -hmm. like with the strongest options that we have. Mm -hmm. But this worries me, and I was also reading um, an article on this, that the people that we're criminalizing by banning them and criminalizing this are people that might be suffering from eating disorders because they're behind the content of these websites. So do we really want to criminalize people that are clearly sick for one thing? And does this solve the problem? Because another research that I was reading yesterday had this, I think, important consideration that you might ban them, but if you ban these groups, they go into further isolation mm -hmm. and they keep reappearing. So the problem might be out of our sight, but it's not like we're not... Um, eliminating the problem. So like by having these sites go underground, it might be even harder to reach people that are already vulnerable. Yeah, and I think it really touches on this topic. Thank you for sharing um, on internet freedom and, and the lengths that we go to protect folks' uh, right to free speech and, and speech on the internet. Um, but it's interesting in, in this case that that threshold is more of a legal threshold is, of how folks are assisting individuals who might or who are potentially um, harmed by these diseases. So I think it's interesting to also see the flip side of that, um, being that people who might be perpetuating it are also seeing the same illness um, present in themselves. So I think that's really an interesting point. Makes it hard to, to figure out how policymakers should address this issue. Yeah, that's a very important point. And something I didn't mention before is not that not only pro-ANA websites are diverse, but even websites that are like that call themselves pro-recovery, which also exist, or websites that are more like educational or informational. Sometimes these sites contain information that can also be harmful. So even sites that are that have a good intent behind them, the impact might be like you could have unintended harm so we might ban pro ana websites but then what do we do about these websites that are supposedly for help but could have other effects so the problem is more widespread and and kind of related to that um are there standards in terms of information and the accuracy of information on the internet for people that are in recovery from um, eating disorders to parse what is um, correct information that they can access and what is harmful, potentially harmful information? 
Um, to my knowledge, I don't know if there is if there are websites guiding like or information guiding sort of users where to best um, get their information mm-hmm. from. But the way I would see it is more of making clinicians or healthcare professionals aware that these sites exist, so that when they're interacting with people that are struggling, they also they're aware that they could be searching information on these sites and that these sites could be potentially harmful. So to address them within like the clinical aspect. Yeah. And also, I think when I think about um, these websites, I think about the role of schools um, and educators in sort of providing um, students with information to restrict access or to educate them about the harms of these sites. Yeah. Or even... Um, like you said, educating and also having the, this as a topic of conversations mm-hmm. in schools. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not from the U.S., so I don't I don't know how the how the educational system works here. But as far as Costa Rica, um, where I'm from, in high schools or even in elementary schools, students are not taught about mental illness or about eating disorders or like how do they, how can they know if somebody they they're friends with is suffering or how do they know if they're suffering from depression and to identify these symptoms so if they're not getting this information in the schools they're not getting this information in their with their families then the natural place where they will get this information is either through their peers or through internet yeah, that makes sense so it's something that i would like um for again well, I was talking about Costa Rica, like for Costa Rica to include as part of their its education. Or even companies, right? Because you talked about the mean age being 27. It seems like this not only affects youth, uh, but there might be a responsibilities for companies or organizations, like you said, WHO, in being more active participants in the conversation and letting folks know that there are good resources out there, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. And also, um, it brings me to um, talk about of eating disorders in a broader sense, because when we, and I made this mistake as well um, initially, when we think about eating disorders, we usually think about people that are suffering from anorexia, like as we usually think about it, or bulimia as we usually think about it. A big portion of people do not suffer from like clear-cut eating disorders. They can be like on a spectrum. And also eating disorders are not just about the weight of a person. So even if a person is overweight, that doesn't mean that he or she is not suffering from an eating disorder. So the um, the population that is affected by them is way more diverse than we initially thought. So it's not just younger people um, in more affluent uh, places of society, but it can also affect like women over 50, for example, or men or people that when we see um, they don't com- they don't necessarily conform to the stereotype in our head, but they might be suffering, or even as far as ethnicity, for example. When I was studying in the U.S., I remember that many people believed that eating disorders did not affect um, Latin American women because of the um, beauty standards of Latin America. I was kind of confused about that because that didn't sort of resonate with the reality that I was living coming from Latin America. So even non-Caucasian people are also affected by eating disorders. So, and I think it's also important for like, future policymakers to know that the problem is more widespread. Yeah. And I don't know if your research touched on this, but sort of the um, gender aspects of this issue. And I think like the stereotype, as you were mentioning, is often young women um, who are suffering from eating disorders. But I think the problem is much more pervasive and widespread. It's your 
research found? Yeah, um, I think the research usually shows that it's like 90% women and 10% men. Mm-hmm. But what makes me really worried about men suffering from eating disorders is that they're like doubly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, they're suffering from a disorder that is stigmatized on the one hand, but also glamorized sometimes, mm-hmm. um, which is negative. But also they're suffering from a disorder that is traditionally associated with women. Mm-hmm. So for men to not only seek help, but also to be um, identified by the healthcare system as suffering from an eating disorder is much harder. You could argue that it could be, I don't want to say worse for men, but it's something that we need to take into account. So as a student at the Kennedy School, how are you hoping to translate some of your public health research into more uh, public policy recommendations or uh, research? Yeah, um, thank you for asking this question. First, I really think that having the topic on the table is a win in itself because it's it's usually not a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely, I want to research more on the policy uh, options. Mm -hmm. I was reading about, um, in the internet, optimizing how the search is, like what, what comes up after people search mm-hmm. on contents. So for making companies filter this information out and leaving the, the more harmful content like on the lower ends of the search. Yeah. And also something that's already been done, which I think is very positive, is that, for example, in the case of suicide, if you search suicide, usually the first thing that comes in the search is um, a phone number for a hotline, mm-hmm. regardless of the information that you're searching, which I think it's a pretty positive yeah. Yeah. Um, option to address it. And I think we can do something similar in terms of eating disorders, directing people to help. Do you think, for example... Google and other search engines have a moral obligation to change their algorithms or modify their algorithms to take into account the harm of content or websites, as we talked about. Yeah, I do think that they have a moral obligation. I I think I, I tend to believe that people have the best of intentions, mm-hmm. um, even these companies. So I think what it's hard is that we couldn't know that the internet would be used for these sorts of more harmful aspects. But now that as we get more information, they do have an obligation to sort of find ways in which to prevent, um, help prevent eating disorders. Yeah, I think that's a really important point um, that with a lot of power and, and data and information, they, like you said, have a moral responsibility to, to think about how to share information in the most productive way and to the best audiences coming from Google. I, <laughs> I hear you on that, and I think it's really important to consider for sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your research, and I'm looking forward to, to what you're going to be doing here, and hopefully we can have further discussions on this and bringing this topic to light at the Kennedy School in a public policy forum I think is really, is really important. Yeah, thank you all. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you again for for putting this topic on the table. Thanks to uh, David Hicks for um, the music featured in this podcast. Um, And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Kennedy School Review.